this is your time. How can we earn twice as much in half the time with joy and ease while serving the highest good? That is our guiding question here at the Free Time Cafe, your home for heart-based business. I'm your host, Jenny Blake. Join me for conversations with authors, friends, and fellow business owners as we explore ways to free your mind, time, and team to do your best work. Now, on to today's show. Hello, everybody. I'm really excited to be here today with longtime friend Josh Kaufman. Josh Kaufman is an author whose books have sold over a million copies worldwide. Today, we're celebrating the 10-year anniversary edition of his best-selling book, The Personal MBA, Master the Art of Business. Josh's research focuses on business, entrepreneurship, skill acquisition, productivity, creativity, applied psychology, practical wisdom, and more. Josh, welcome to the show. Jenny, thanks so much for having me on. Have we been friends for 10 years? I think more so. More than 10 years now? I think it's at least our 10-year friend anniversary because I remember hosting you for Authors at Google when I still worked there. Yeah, I, I remember I remember that. And I remember we were both at South by Southwest when when our first books were, were coming out and we had a co-launch party. That's right. right. That was in 2011. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. my goodness. So yes, this is our it's it's at least our 10 year friend anniversary. That's so, so cool. I, I had so much fun doing the co-launch with you. Me too. Wouldn't have done it any other way. It was great. In those 10 years, your book has sold almost a million copies. And it's kind of good that we haven't caught up super recently because now I get to ask you with everyone here listening, what has that been like for you? I think and let me let me preface that by saying, I think sometimes as entrepreneurs, we're striving and striving, okay, if only I can get a best selling book, or I can get on this list or that one. And you actually achieved that tipping point with your work. And I wonder, how did you handle the success of that over these last 10 years? It's been pretty wild. Um, you always hope when when you write a book, it's like you you hope you write a good book, you hope it's something that's going to help a lot of people. And you, you hope that it sells well. And so, uh, but you never know and, until you actually write the book and, and you put it out into the world. And so one of the things that I think worked very well for Personal MBA is that it's an evergreen topic. Like people will always need to know more about how businesses work and, and improve their business skills, I mean, whether they're, they're building their own business or they're working on their, their career. And so there's, there's a consistent demand for information like this. And then, you know, hopefully writing something that that helps people do this important thing in their life, that's step one. But then marketing that book over a long period of time is is step two. And so most of my marketing efforts over the years have really been focused on doing things to promote the book in a systematic way instead of I think what what a lot of um, particularly first time authors will do is is spend a lot of time and attention doing the the big book launch, which may sell a lot of books over a week or two weeks, but won't necessarily sell books over months or years or decades. And so I, I think the thing that worked really well for Personal MBA is you know trying to find ways to keep the book out and available and relevant and accessible to people where they are when they decide they are interested in, in learning more about business. And then making sure all of those promotional activities are things that can continue to exist for a long period of time. 
uh, not necessarily, you know, things that are, are just out for a week and then disappear. So I, I love that you're sharing this. And we both know Michael Bungay Stanier, his best advice was I've watched him launch the coaching habit. And he said, my success timeline of how I'll gauge this launch is five years. Yeah. And I know you think in a really similar way. I just love your focus on the systems behind longevity and creating something truly evergreen. I have a two-part question. Choose your own adventure of which one you want to start with. Did you have gremlins picking such a vast evergreen topic like business? <laughs> Did you have gremlins at the outset of who am I, Josh, to write this book? And there's already so much out there. So that's part one. And then part two is just, can you dig into those systems a little bit? What choices have you made? What have you said no to that actually help you systematize the ongoing marketing rather than the flash in the pan that you described? Yeah. So, so to the first part, the whole genesis of the personal MBA as a project was me trying to find a book like this. So, so when I, when I decided I, I wanted to learn more about business, I thought, I remember thinking to myself, there has to be, you know, some business school professor somewhere who wrote a book in the 1950s about, you know, here, here's, here's an introduction to business. Here's everything you need to know in order to get started. And I looked and I looked and I looked, and as far as I could tell, it didn't exist. And I looked long and hard enough that it's like, hey, I, I really care about this topic. I want to learn. I want to get better at this area of life. I want to understand what's going on. And then after looking so long and so hard and, and realizing like there, there's, there's just really not something like this that exists yet, um, there, there was the question of, well, do I care enough about this in order to make it? You know, if it's going to exist, it looks like it's got to be me. Is that something that I'm willing and, and able to do? After thinking for a while, it's like, yeah, I, I, I think this is something that can and should exist in the world for people who are interested in this particular important area of life. And so, you know, that's that's when the work began. And, and for me, it began as a lot of research, you know, reading, reading thousands of business books, trying to figure out what's important and what's not, marrying the things that I was reading about with the things that I was experiencing, both in, in my, you know, big company corporate day job, but, but also in the, the businesses that I was starting on the side, you know, my entrepreneurial ventures. And so that, that combination of things, I, I think part of the reason that the personal MBA didn't exist uh, prior to my work on it was because business school professors and, you know, bus business academia, business writers in general, as as a rule, are rewarded for specialization. They're rewarded for going very deep on a very narrow sort of topic. And and in order for something like the personal MBA to exist, it has to be general on purpose. You have to cover everything. And so I think that sensibility and that perspective, frankly, being willing to to do the work in terms of of research and and writing and and synthesis, in order to to help a reader who may have no experience with business at all, really understand the full lay of the land, you know, how they work, how to uh, work with other people, how to set up systems, what they are, why they're important. And, and I think just doing that over a long enough period of time, that, that's where it was less a question of, you know, am, am, I, am I qualified? Am I the person to do this? And, and more, more of a, a coming coming into an understanding of, of no, like this is a very specific kind of work. And for whatever reason, you know, historical ask accident or uh, rewards and incentives or, or anything else, 
I'm the person who's doing it right now. So I'm, I'm going to be the one who, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I love that. I love what you're describing of doing the work of synthesis, that inherently this is, this is a book that is a general sort of broad swath of what's out there, but it's not easy. It's very complex, actually, to simplify somehow or create the essence of 270 plus concepts that you do in the book. And also, I would add that your slice, your lens as a beginner, when you first set out on this quest to research this subject area of business, that beginner lens probably allows you to translate all of these specialists and niche topics into the book that it became for a general audience. Yeah, I, I think if I had any any particular advantage, it was not being worried about sounding too smart or or too sophisticated. That's awesome. Do you worry that like your business would evolve? Because, you know, it's always embarrassing to look back on a previous book. I did a revised edition of Life After College. And like I had inspirational quotes at the end of every chapter where I was quoting a certain president and I'm like, ooh, get those out of there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, did you worry when you were writing it that your knowledge, you know, would evolve beyond what you had written in the next five years or 10 years? I, I think that I wasn't worried so much while I was writing, mostly because I was writing uh, for it to be evergreen on purpose. And and so I, I'm I'm happy to say that that most of that worked. Uh, there, there were a few things in the book that I, I absolutely needed to change. Like I was writing the draft at a, a point in time where Netflix's primary business model was mailing DVDs uh, back and forth via the, the postal service. Like, oh man, that's, uh, that definitely dates the book. But, but in general, like I, I tried to, to make the material evergreen to use examples that would survive in general, when I when I did the revision and and the tenth anniversary edition is is a full revision of of the entire book. I went I went back through everything, and it's a it's a humbling experience to go back and and read things that you wrote a decade ago. Um, both in terms of of you know ten years of experience gives you a different a different frame of reference and a different sensibility of of what good clear straightforward writing looks like. So I I can't tell you how many unnecessary adverbs I I just cut from the book just <laughs> and, and just like I cringe every time because you know I going back into you know Josh 10 years ago it's it's this like I'm trying to emphasize something I'm trying to to really signal to the reader that something's important and and then you know me now is looking back on this like dude you're trying too hard like just say what you need to say they'll they'll right. get it or when it, in written form my dad is one of my readers like i won't ship something without his, his eyes on it and he's so mm -hmm. he's so good about occam's razor you know if it can be said in fewer words do that and all the times where i say it's very this or um you know all the descriptors it's really important you can just say important because when the reader is yeah. reading you actually don't need you're right all those adverbs just get in the way and they create clutter and they almost sound over the top which is strange because when we're speaking, it might not sound over the top, but in writing it does. It's yeah. I don't know about you. <laughs> well, one, one of the things that I realized, and, and I think I've always, I've always done it this way. I, I read what I write aloud to myself in my head as I'm writing it. And you know, that, that includes things like pauses and emphasis and, and all of those things that we use in, in verbal speech. And, but when you try to translate that directly into writing, 
you end up with writing that's frankly not very good because there's there's a lot of there are a lot of verbal devices that just don't work very well on the written page. And so learning to, learning to not do that. That's true. Right? That's why reading transcripts is so awkward because writing voice is one thing, but when you read the spoken voice in print, it's like, oh man, is that how I sound? I mean, even just now I said the word like. It's like, yeah. is that how I sound? And if I read that on a piece of paper, I would cringe. <laughs> I yeah. would just say, oh my gosh, I've lost 100 IQ points just in reading this as a transcript rather than the craft of writing. Yeah, I, I would overuse italics a lot because in my yes, head, there's, there's an emphasis at a point in a sentence and right. that's where I want to put it. But when you read it, it's like, no, like just just stop doing command or control I all the time. You don't need, you don't need to do that. <laughs> Oh my gosh, yes. The eternal quest of clear writing. I feel so awkward. I mean, even though I've, I just, I always feel awkward. I always feel awkward writing. I feel awkward reading the drafts. I think people probably don't realize how many passes a book goes through of just cuts, slices, edits. Thank goodness that we have other people's eyes on it. I want to come back to what you said about launching in a systemic way over time. And I know you geek out on systems theory probably much more than I do, but I love thinking in terms of systems as well. And specifically, I'm curious that, you know, you wrote a book, your most recent book in 2018 is How to Fight a Hydra. And it strikes me that what everyone wants is to achieve some level of success, not everyone, and you can define success in your own terms. But actually, the more successful you become, the easier it is for your systems to break. Mm -hmm. Or you have one too many inboxes, or you're now reacting to so many requests, you have to uplevel your systems in order to handle it. So I'd love for you to talk about both the evergreen systems you put in place of how you gave your book that decade long sense of longevity, and also what the heck you did once it started really taking off? How did you handle reacting to so much incoming to you? Okay, so so let's do the the marketing and the sales first, because because I think that that was something that was built into the personal MBA uh, from the beginning. Um, and it worked really well. So, so one of the things that that I spent a lot of time thinking about is there's, there's this idea that I talk about in the personal MBA called point of market entry, where is you know in in certain markets, even for someone who will eventually become a customer, there's there's sometimes a very long period of time where they just don't they don't care about whatever it is that you're marketing or or whatever it is they have to sell because they're they're not at the stage of life or in personal circumstances that would cause them to care. And a, a good tangible example of this is um, baby clothes, baby items. Unless you are expecting a child in the near future, or you know someone who is, all any information about baby anything is, is likely to just be totally ignored. Go, go straight over your head. You don't even pay attention to it because it's not relevant to you and it's not relevant to, to where you are in your life. There is a point of market entry for business, uh, particularly adult business learners. And the, the easiest way to, to find them on the internet is, you know, for better or worse, when an adult decides to become interested in business, the first thing they type into Google or the first thing they type into Amazon is MBA. And the personal MBA is not titled the personal MBA by accident. It's a way of showing up when people are are finally at the stage in their life where like this is important this is valuable i'm going to take learning about this area of life seriously that's a place where i want to be and so some of the thinking around around title around framing around 
how do we present this material uh, to someone who is going to be interested in, in learning about this and taking it seriously? It starts there, you know, being in the places where people are, are already looking, already searching. And then what I wanted to do with the material, uh, because all of the concepts are, are evergreen, I wanted to have them in the places where, where people are looking. And so, you know, if, if someone is, let's take a, a financial concept, um, if, if someone is looking up um, what's a cash flow statement, how does it work? Why is it important? That's a place that I want to be too, because the type of person who is searching for that is also the type of person who would probably get a lot of value out of reading the personal MBA. And so I spent a lot of time optimizing both the book and then the website associated with the book. So if someone someone is searching for a cash flow statement or one of the other, you know, uh, 270 odd concepts that I talk about in the personal MBA, if someone's searching for that, they're going to find me. And and just being being in a position to talk to a person where and when they are open and receptive and actively looking for the type of thing that you offer, the marketing and the sales becomes much easier. If, if someone's not in a, in a life stage or a, a frame of mind to really benefit from business instruction, it's a much, it's a much harder sell. Um, so just be, me, meeting, meeting potential readers where they are and talking to them when they are open and receptive uh, makes the rest of it much easier. I love that. Yeah, and Pivot, I talk about make yourself discoverable. You know, in order yeah. for two Bluetooth devices to connect, they need to be in discoverability mode. And you creating a website that would meet readers where they are, what they're searching for, and really thinking in their terms makes you so much more discoverable. And not just for the book itself, but specific concepts, because that's going to be somebody's point of entry. Yeah, I totally. Love that. I mean, even think about, so the the most valuable search engine for books is not Google, it's Amazon. Right. And even now, like I, I, I just did it to, to verify this is still true. But if you go to Amazon and you type in MBA in the search bar, my book comes up first. And, and that's, a, that's a valuable place to be. Yeah, that or they know. They're like, this guy, Josh, keeps buying copies of this book, The Personal MBA. <laughs> <laughs> Mine on Pivot is like, you have bought this seven times or, you know, 25 yep. times. The other thing is uh, twice now in my life in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, I've bought stacks of GMAT books. And I mean stacks. These books are thick. They're expensive. So... <laughs> Of course, you're not this type to totally game the system, but it's like, why you should throw away your GMAT books and read this one instead. Like, it's just to figure out what are people looking for? What do they think they need? When I, mm -hmm. when I started Life After College in 2005, I did it as a project to help me get into business school. I was also lost and lonely and I wanted to offer something to people like me who my friends were still in college. I'd left school early. But I also thought, oh, if I applied to business school, it would look good if I started something. And then the right, irony yeah. is that it circumvented the need to go. But nonetheless, I just had this kind of misplaced notion of what I needed to do. And I love what you offer is an alternative, but you have to kind of meet people where they are. So it is, even if you're not going to help people, I mean, yeah. So I'll, I'll just pause there. But I just wanted to say, I, I love how you think about it and, and how you're framing it in this way and really putting yourself in your reader's shoes. I think that's so important. Thanks. Yeah. You, you actually reminded me of a, a quote by a, a friend of mine, Patrick McKenzie, amazing programmer, entrepreneur. 
And uh, and he he said something to to the effect of the the best training you could ever get for for working for a company is starting your own business, except that starting your own business and having it work cures you of the desire to ever work for a company ever again. <laughs> we'll be right back just after this. And I wonder how you feel having worked at a really big company. I feel quite delighted by staying small. And mm-hmm. I wonder for you, I st- we still haven't talked about handling the influx, yeah. <laughs> handling the success. But let's just put a pin in coming back to the size of your team and the size of your business and have you stayed deliberately small. I am a bit business of one yes. and always have been and always plan to be. Well, talk to us about that because, again, with, with the personal MBA taking off, and this is something I tried to avoid actually myself, you could easily have built out this group of consultants or in-house consulting firm or who even knows what a group of coaches. I mean, you could have created something complex to mm-hmm. meet that need of what the market was, the interest that was there. And so walk us through your decisions along the way of staying a, a delightful company of one. So uh, there there are a couple of parts to that. Part of it is is personal interests and inclinations. And then part of it is, you know, the the uncertainties and uh, general craziness of life. And and so the first part, you know, coming from a big corporate background, um, I worked in in product development and uh, marketing, marketing management for Procter & Gamble. So huge con- uh, global consumer goods company. And there, there were a lot of really good positive things about that particular experience. What I didn't really like and found out, found out thankfully, relatively early in my career is that I am capable and depending on who you're talking to, a pretty good manager when that is when that is necessary to do, but I don't enjoy it. I find it extraordinarily stressful. Um, I and, I and I find that when I am in a management or an oversight capacity, it's very easy to spend all of my time and attention there, you know, a big bundle of worry and stress. And I don't get to do the things that I find more rewarding, more valuable, more long-term um, feeling like, yeah, this is, this is how I want to be spending my time. This is how I want to be investing my career. And so for me, the early decision of, of like, I'm, I'm not going to build out a huge, uh, a huge business. I'm not going to build, you know, this, this big corporate structure was out of pure personal preference. Like there, <laughs> there are many ways I can spend my life and, and I would, I would, all things being equal, prefer to enjoy my daily experience <laughs> instead of, of just kind of beating my head against the wall every day. A hundred percent. I relate so much. And I think you and I both value reading, learning, digging, growing, expanding, you know, synthesizing, putting new ideas out. And it's, it's hard to do that if you're in manager mode. Yeah, totally. Or running complex company mode. I, I enjoy building stuff. Yes. And it's really difficult to spend most of your time building stuff if you're overseeing other people who are building things. <laughs> and, then, and then I find I'm the bottleneck because... Yeah, absolutely. Because, right, capable mm-hmm. is a good way to put it. Even when I was at Google and I became a manager for the first time, I loved the coaching aspect of it. I love just asking them big questions. And I remember mm-hmm. some of the feedback my first team gave was... She asks too many questions. Like we just, we just want her to tell us what to do a little bit and be more directive. And 
it just wasn't the thing I loved and performance reviews and writing out all the logistics and all the meetings and then the HR stuff, just like you found it extraordinarily um, stressful to, oh, it just was not my zone of genius. And that's when I realized too, I'm like, okay, I have no aspiration to run a hundred person company. And that would yeah. even be considered quote small. <laughs> yeah, totally. To some people. Yeah. I, it, the other thing for me, and I, I found this out relatively early, you know, in, in experiences and thankfully, you know, relatively low risk, straightforward um, engagements with, with contractors or, or consultants or things like that, just personality wise. And, and, and my inclination is when I'm, when I'm working with people, my inclination is to take care of them. And that becomes really challenging sometimes when there is a conflict between taking care of someone who works for you and managing to get a particular result. And so I found myself very early on in situations where as a business owner, I was accepting results that were, were less ideal for me in a, or out of a desire to, to take care of, of people, to make things easier for people to not be a strain, to not be a stress. And there's a little bit of a fundamental tension there for me. And so, you know, particularly from a, you know, one of the things that I like, because I, I do hire contractors, I do hire people to do specific things for me. And I, I think that's at least for me and, and the way that I, I orient myself to the world, that's a much, a much easier, more straightforward, more enjoyable relationship to have. So um, I have, uh, his name is Pete Garceau. He is, he's bar none, one of the best uh, cover designers in the world. He, he did the the cover for the 10th anniversary edition of, of personal MBA, as well as how to fight a Hydra and working with Pete is a joy because he is excellent at what he does. Um, I, I give him as, as clear an instruction as I can. And, you know, here's the time frame that it needs to be done. And he comes back with, with a bunch of different options. We go through a, a few iterations, we get to a final, I choose it. I get the result. He gets paid. Everyone's happy. And, and that sort of structure for me um, is, is just much more enjoyable because I, can, I have more latitude to choose who I'm working with, what they're working on, what the terms of the relationship are. And then, you know, we're, we're all just focused on getting the, the result as, as quickly as we can. And like you said, because they're specialists, they're inherently complementary. They're giving you something you can't do on your yeah. own. So tell us a little bit, how is your team currently set up? Because I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I like to say no one on my team works full-time, even me. So yeah. it, it didn't make sense to me actually to hire any full-time employees because I thought I don't even work full-time. I aspire to work 20 hours a week on average, let's say. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's full-time. I'm just redefining what full-time means because I think it's easy to fill time. And so I'd love to know, how's your team set up to enable you to do your building mode and your most creative work while balancing whatever kind of maintenance mode things that you also work on. Yeah, totally. Um, so I, I rely on two fundamental kind of types of, of structure or help right now. Um, one is, is, um, the consultant side. So like, uh, Pete is, is my cover designer. David Moldauer is my editor. He, Love uh, David Moldauer. David's amazing. Shout and I David. met David. David was um, my editor at Penguin Random House for the first edition of the book. Um, he has since moved on and, and has, has been at a, a number of companies and is, is now edit, doing developmental editing and, and a bunch of other 
author editorial services uh, freelance. So I've worked with with David on every single one of my books, and and he's a joy to work with. I have my agent uh, Lisa Demona, who is amazing, and I and also she, love and, Lisa. We're gonna have to send oh, that. She's great. <laughs> I love she, her. Yes, she is. She is a a a wonderful person, and um, one of those people that you know. Her job is ne- negotiation, right? Like making going back and forth with publishers, um, making agreements clear, trying to either get more compensation or, or other, other forms of, you know, how are we going to make, make a, a, a book or a deal work? And she's so good at it because she gets wonderful results and she doesn't browbeat people into submission. You know, everybody at, at the end of the process feels better about the whole thing than, than they did when they started. And that's just a, a very rare quality. And so, yeah, I, I have my team of people who help me on the publishing side. And then a lot of the, the things that I do, one, so, so my second book, uh, The First 20 Hours, was all about learning new skills quickly. And one of the things that I learned uh, in the process of, of testing the theories in that book was computer programming. And I still, you know, na- almost a decade later, like I still do this every day because what i find is is it helps me to build the systems that i need to save myself from future work or to make things that would take uh, potentially a, an enormous amount of time and energy and and attention capacity i can just write a little program and and all of that goes away so a, a good example of this uh, how to fight a hydra was uh, my first completely self-published book. I, I did the entire process from beginning to end. Uh, the only things that I didn't do uh, were editorial, proofreading, and uh, Pete did the cover design on, on that one. And so everything else from, from first draft to shipping the final version to make it available worldwide was me. And part of what made that happen was uh, I wrote myself uh, essentially, essentially my own little publishing uh, layout program where I could take my manuscript and, and give a command to my computer. And I had a print-ready PDF ready to be uploaded in about 10 milliseconds, which was just a really fun way to work on a book. It is so impressive. Yeah, it's like it, it, you've been through this process a couple of times now. Like books kind of feel surreal in the older process because, you know, they exist as a, a Word document on your computer for, you know, potentially years. And you don't get to see the finished output until very, very late in the process. And so just, you know, being able to, to write myself or create myself a system where I'm seeing the finished result evolving as I work on it, I found very helpful and very motivating. It, it felt real faster. And, and I, I was... I wanted to make more progress on that faster because I could see the end result developing in, uh, before my eyes. I love that. And what, what's your philosophy that has you? For me, there's an agile development quote. Each time you repeat a task, take one step toward automating it. It just resonates in my soul that I shouldn't be doing the same yeah. thing twice. <laughs> what's your yeah, systems totally. theory that drives your work or continuing to tweak your programs and teach yourself? What's the itch that you have to create systems. Yeah, I, I think um, what's what's the old programming quote? Um, like the virtue virtues of a programmer are uh, laziness, uh, hubris and and something else that I don't remember off the top of my head. It, it's like, yeah, you, you're doing work that it feels like is repetitive, kind of boring. 
oh, laziness, impatience, and hubris. And so, yeah, it, it's, you know, when, when you're doing the same thing over and over again, that gets boring very quickly. Can you make that go away by just, you know, doing a little bit of programming, do a little bit, doing a little bit of systems design? Um, can you create a system that makes it very straightforward and easy to do something that would otherwise require a lot of thought? And, and so, you know, in a, if you have a website, everybody has, has the experience of, you know, kind of logging into to a website and, you know, you, you have a, a title and, and place, places to post all the things that you need to think about before something is published live on a website. That's a form of structure that, that cues you about everything that you're going to need in order to take the next step. So sometimes those, those um, systems look like, I know you're, you're famous for your book marketing uh, spreadsheet, book marketing system. That, that guiding structure helps you not have to reinvent the wheel every time you do something. You just you, you pull out the checklist and you go down the checklist. So, so a little bit of that. And then um, on the creation side, there have been a few problems um, or, or challenges in, in publishing and you know, working on websites for, for now, you know, almost two decades that are just really annoying. And, and it, I'm kind of having the same experience that um, I had with personal MBA. It's like, really, this is still a problem? There should be something that exists that makes this problem go away. And the more often I think that about a particular problem, the more likely it is I'm going to spend some time um, systematizing or automating. It. I love that Kevin Kelly says he tries to give all his best ideas away. He's the co-founder of Wired. And that if mm -hmm. they keep coming back to him and they stick to him, then he'll pursue it. But he actually tries to give them yeah. away. And in your case, I, can, I I'm so with you that there are certain things where like, how has this not been fixed yet? And it's just the software or the tools are just years behind where they should be, could be. And the the other thing I find is sometimes my mind works in systems. It's just how it is. And it can be kind of frustrating <laughs> where you're like, why wouldn't they see that this is so inefficient? You know, <laughs> or like, does that mean to kind of be patient with people whose minds work in different, much more creative ways? You know, I'm creative about systems, not visual things. That's just like you, I kind of need to hire out for things like that that involve anything visually. So, and do you, uh, just real quick, because we're almost at time, but what's your system for discernment about what to say yes and what to say no to? That is a whole lot of gut feel. And, and a lot of it comes down to, does this sound interesting? Does this sound enjoyable? Does this sound like something that would stretch me in an, in an important direction? Or is this the kind of thing that sounds sounds good or sounds promising or sounds novel or high status but doesn't really doesn't really have any long-term implications. I wrote about an idea a while back and it actually made its way in, into the new edition of the personal MBA. Um this idea of of status malfunction. And so, you know, human beings, we are we're status-oriented creatures. Like we we care what other people think about us. We want people to think, you know, we're we're smart and important and fancy in, in all the ways that we care about. And because we have this kind of built-in inclination, things that have status attached to them often feel a lot more enticing or important than they actually are when, when you look at the, the results or the outcomes that come from pursuing those, those status-oriented things. So a, a good, good example of this is, is that uh, the the personal MBA has sold an enormous number of copies, 
over over the course of its lifetime and has never hit a major bestseller list ever and probably will never that seems really weird um from the perspective of i'm 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 not super concerned about that because you know those those higher status signals you know being able to put you know new york times bestseller or something on your book like that can that can feel good in the moment but when when i look at what it would take to pursue one of those things versus spending the same amount of time or energy not doing that and you know making a more effective system to sell copies of this book for the next 50 years there's no contest and so i i'm really I find myself becoming more and more conscious about, am I doing this just because it sounds cool or good or important? Or am I doing this because I think it's going to create a long-term result that's Mm. important to me? So good. So good. And just to, I'm trying to work on slowing down so I can think that through and not leaping. And like you said, oh my gosh, the ridiculous hoops you, you have to go through to try to just get on a list when... The readers are going to spread it word of mouth if it's good. The, the longevity that you have selling almost a million copies, it's so much more meaningful in every way to have longevity and so many readers and such a robust community than it is to make a list for a week and fizzle out, just like we started this conversation talking about. Yeah, totally. I Just go for it. Paying attention to what the long term is is going to be will we'll pay div- dividends well and above like what's really cool right I now. I love it. Josh, this has been so great to chat and catch up and hear how you think about everything and how you and celebrating the 10 year anniversary. Where can people find you if they want to keep in touch? And I'll put a link to the new edition in the notes as well. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, the the best place to find out about the new edition of the book is at the website personalmba.com. You can browse around, see what's in the book, um, see what speaks to you. And uh, the best place to find about my new projects, all the cool things that I'm working on right now, uh, you can find that at joshkaufman.net. Amazing. Thank you so much, Josh. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Jenny, it's so great to catch up. Likewise. And congrats on our friendiversary and uh, two updated editions of our book. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye, everyone. If you've listened this far, you get a gold star. Thank you. Word of mouth is the most joyful way we can grow this show, and it helps us land interviews with the luminaries and insightful guests that you would most love to hear from. Please send this episode to a friend who might find it helpful. And for show notes and related links from this episode, visit itsfreetime.com. While you're there, make sure you're subscribed to the Time Well Spent newsletter. You'll get instant access to my tech toolkit, a continually updated list of all the software I use, along with the total monthly spend to run my business, where no one works full-time, even me. Visit itsfreetime.com slash join. Remember, you are running the show. It's time for radical reimagining, and everything is up for grabs. Let it be easy, let it be fun, and build with love.